This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for another weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. We release new episodes every Thursday, and it's the history of the Christmas party season that we're unwrapping today. More specifically, we're focusing our attention on the festive feasts that took place at four English heritage sites. These are Eltham Palace in London, Whitley Court in Worcestershire, Rest Park in Bedfordshire and Audley End in Essex. And with us to explain how their rich and powerful former residents celebrated, what was on the menu and how guests were entertained is Properties Historian's team leader, Dr Andrew Han. Hello, Andrew. Hello there and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, Andrew. Thanks for coming on again. Well, let's start off with Eltham Palace in London, which served as a royal palace during the medieval and Tudor periods before it transformed into a millionaire's mansion in the 1930s. What are the earliest records of Eltham being used for Christmas celebrations? Well, the earliest records we have of uh, Christmas at Eltham Palace date back to as early as 1364. And that's when Edward III received King John II of France amid great dancing and caroling during the festive season. Now, John had actually been captured by Edward's son, the Black Prince, at the Battle of Poitiers in 1356, and he'd been held prisoner for a while in England. And then in 1360, he'd been released from captivity, returned to France in order to ostensibly to gather a huge ransom payment. And while he was there, he left his son, Louis of Anjou, behind as a hostage. But then Louis escaped and King John was so mortified by the dishonour this sort of represented that he voluntarily returned to exile in England. And he arrived at Dover on the day before Epiphany. So that's the 5th of January of 1364. And after giving devotions at the shrine of St Thomas Becket in Canterbury Cathedral, he was received by the king at Eltham on the 8th of January. So it's a little bit after Christmas, but at this period, during the medieval period, we're still during the festive season because that lasted until Candlemas on the 2nd of February. So we can still officially, I think, call this part of the Christmas season. And King John remained then a hostage in England during the winter months, although he did live in some luxury at the Savoy Palace. So it's not how we traditionally see a, a hostage. He's, he's actually living in some luxury and being entertained by the king and visited by the king on a number of occasions. But sadly, he falls ill and then dies in England in, at the Savoy Palace in April of 1364. Really? Wow. So uh, he's spending Christmas technically as a, what, a political hostage, a p- political prisoner in a way, at the king's pleasure? Yes, effectively, he's attending Christmas festivities at Eltham as a, as a hostage, but he's also being invited as a, an honoured guest. So it's a little strange juxtaposition there, but that's the way that medieval uh, politics often worked in that kings would be treated with due reverence when they were held hostage. It sounds like the chivalric code was very much in place at that time. Yes, as John felt that it was his duty to go back to England and become a hostage as his son had escaped and being a hostage wasn't such a bad thing. You know, you were still, you had your small number of courtiers around you. You were given plenty of food and entertainment and the King of England would come to visit you on several occasions. So it wasn't the sort of hostage situation that we might imagine today. Okay, well, who's the next royal to use Elton Palace as their festive party palace? Well, we know that a lot of the kings of England that followed on from Edward III used Eltham frequently as uh, as one of their major palaces because it was one of the most 
extravagant royal palaces by this period. But one who particularly seems to have enjoyed Eltham is Henry IV. And he celebrated 10 of his 13 Christmases here while he was king. And one particular occasion was during the Christmas period of 1400. So between December 1400 and and actually mid-February of 1401, he hosted the Byzantine emperor. Now, I have to see if I can get this right. Manuel II Paleologus. Okay. While the emperor, the Byzantine emperor was there, they held a, a number of events. They held a great joust in his honour. And Henry, he first met the emperor Blackheath and conducted him and his 40 retainers to Eltham and there was dances laid on and caroling and and he had some a party of people came up from London to give carols and mumming and that sort of thing over the Christmas period only difficulty was that conversation must have been quite difficult because the emperor didn't speak either English or Latin which is the language of court and diplomacy he only spoke Greek so quite how uh, the king Henry IV would have conversed with him we don't know One thing that did happen, though, Manuel brought with him a series of quite extravagant Christmas gifts in the form of religious relics. He brought what were fragments of the true cross and also garments believed to have been worn by Jesus Christ and the Virgin Mary. So Mm. these were being very prestigious gifts to have given to his uh, host. Yes, highly valuable, I'm sure. And with those huge religious connotations as well. Was there a political reason for Manuel II's visit to Eltham? There was indeed. I mean, what Manuel was hoping for was money and military support from Henry against the Ottoman Turks who were threatening his capital, Constantinople. Over the previous sort of 50 years or so, the Turks had been really conquering large areas of the Byzantine Empire. So only a small slither of territory remained, including the capital, Constantinople. And so Manuel was really sort of desperate for any support he could get from other Christian kings in Europe. So He'd been doing the rounds of various different capitals. He'd been to France, he'd been to the uh, Holy Roman Empire, he'd been to Italy, whatever, to Venice. But he came to England hoping to get some support. And despite being showered with all these gifts, with lots of gifts while he was in England, he returned to Constantinople empty-handed in terms of the sort of military support that he was hoping for. Well, let's move on to another king who was at Eltham. This particular one was responsible for building the Great Hall which made an excellent party venue. Who was this? Well, this was Edward IV, and he, as you say, built the Great Hall, which was indeed a fantastic party venue. It was a very large structure, ideal for laying on large banquets and and large entertainment. And Elton, of course, was one of Edward's favourite residences, and he spent lots of time here hunting, entertaining and dining with his court. On one particular occasion, he had a sumptuous Christmas feast in 1482, with over 2,000 guests. So that's almost the, the entire court there. And this was the last time, sadly, though, that King Edward visited Eltham before his unexpected death the following April. So he had this absolutely massive feast there, but that was his last Christmas, sadly. As we move into the Tudor period, though, we have Henry VII and his later son, Henry VIII. They use Eltham Palace for Christmas celebrations, don't they? But how does Henry VII do it? Well, Henry VII used Eltham primarily as a nursery for his children. So Arthur, Margaret, Henry and Mary, his four children that went through to adulthood, they spent a lot of their childhood at at Eltham Palace. And Henry also spent many of his Christmases there with his family. And it was one of the few royal palaces that was large enough to accommodate the whole of the royal court. So it was an ideal place for him to spend Christmas with his children. But then when we see Henry VIII come to the throne, he also favours Eltham and he... entertains very lavishly there on a number of Christmases. And I want to pick out particularly 
the Christmas of 1516, and in particular Twelfth Night then, so the 5th of January in 1516, when a particularly extravagant series of entertainments were laid on for Henry in the Great Hall. And these all centred around a sort of wooden sham castle, which was erected in the room, especially for the occasion. And the events centred around, they were all organised by the King's Master of the Chapel Royal, William Cornish. And first of all, he put on a, a comedy, a new comedy called The Story of Troilus and Pandor, which centred around some of the royal choristers dressed as Trojans in white and green, alluding to the supposed descent of the Kings of England from Troy. And then after that, attention turned to this castle and a number of performers started to emerge from the castle. So first of all, you've got three knights came out of the castle and they fought against three other strange knights who had entered the arena into the into the hall. And when they'd been victorious, gave some speeches. And then a queen with a fantastic crown and her ladies-in-waiting emerged out of the castle and started making some speeches. Then seven minstrels appeared. And all these activities are choreographed by Cornish, who's standing at the side giving instructions. Yeah. And after all this sort of entertainment, they then had a huge banquet with over 200 dishes served up. And it says there was great plenty for everybody, is in the quote from the Chronicle. Right. That's a really highly interactive Christmas, almost panto, as, as we might see it today, you know, Christmas play. With that castle actually being mocked up and people entering it and coming out and giving speeches. And, and obviously they've done very well to um, praise the king and put him in a good mood as well by linking him with um, classical antiquity. Yeah. So it sounds like there was a, a lot spent on planning there and also in the eating. Definitely. I mean, these these events were always very extravagant events and often had lots of sort of rich imagery and, and praise for the king, as you were saying. And this sort of idea that the king would be entertained with vast, quite intricate festivities with lots of sort of performance involved and quite often very elaborate sets was quite a, a sort of common factor of the of the Tudor period. Mm. They often laid on mock battles and things on lakes with, um, you know, series of ships fighting out battles in front of the watching monarch. You know, there's a lot of these really extravagant events were, were quite commonplace, but this was one of the more extravagant, I think, for Christmas. Yes, if you, I think if you had to sum it up, it would be a high degree of political Christmas theatre. <laughs> exactly. What about the um, arrival of the plague, though? Because um, people might know that that affected Henry VIII's reign. Did it affect his Christmas party plans at Eltham? It certainly did. I mean, Henry was renowned for being very paranoid of catching the plague. He really was worried about it. So when he heard in 1525 that the great death had descended upon London, he rushed to leave the court in central London and retreat to the safety of Elton Palace with a small handful of his closest servants. And to prevent the spread of the plague, he ordered that no one was allowed to enter or leave the palace without his express permission and all the usual Christmas festivities would be cancelled. And that year, Henry's Christmas was going to be very quiet and subdued affair. But Cardinal Wolsey, over on the other side of London, had different ideas, and he invited all the lords and ladies who would have normally come to, to visit Henry to come to the palace where he was staying at Richmond, where he put on plays, disguises and banquets throughout the Christmas season. And I can only imagine that Henry wasn't at all amused by this. Well, if we move forward to the 20th century, Elton Palace was, as we know, because we've discussed it before, reinvented as the Art Deco mansion of this wealthy so socialite couple called the Courtholds. We've covered this in a previous podcast that the couple travelled usually during the winter months. But of course, World War II would have changed their travel plans. 
So do we have any records of their time at Elton Palace during the Second World War period? Yes, we do. I mean, we know that, as you say, that that the war put an end to their sort of globe trotting. They weren't able to go on their world travels during the wartime period. So they settled down at Eltham. But ever the entertainers, they were very keen to have company at Eltham with them. So we know that Ginny, I've seen a number of letters that she wrote in her distinctive green biro or green pen that she wrote in. She's writing to various friends and family, constantly writing to them saying, please come and stay at Eltham. We'd love to have you here. And throughout the war, the Courtauld's did have a number of house guests who stayed with them throughout the war. People like the politician Rab Butler, who'd been bombed out of his London house, and Stephen's cousins, George and Augustine Courtauld, who had military jobs in London. And they all sort of stayed with the Courtauld's and then slept in the basement during air raids. And we have one particular photograph that shows 11 people sitting down to Christmas dinner in 1942. And this includes a number of the people I just mentioned. So George Courtauld and his wife, Claudine, August Courtauld and his wife, Molly, and also other close friends of theirs, such as Eilif Cousins and George Binney, who are also involved in the military, and the Courtauld's nephew, Peter Pirano, who lived with them. So uh, you've got a whole group of them having dinner uh, uh, in 1942. And also around the table, quite interestingly, was their housekeeper, Violet Torkler, who seems to be treated almost as part of the family group and often invited to dinner. And we know that one of the gardeners, Christine Falwasser, was also a regular dinner guest because she was supposed to be have a lot of really good anecdotes. So we can imagine she might have also graced the, the dinner table over Christmas as well. Very interesting. And you can see how between the 20th century and the century before that... Um relationships between owners of the house and servants has slightly changed. It certainly has. You can't imagine Henry VIII having his uh, his cook or manservant sitting around the dinner table with him, can you? Mm. Um, I mean, if you look at that photograph again, though, you can see what they've just... It looks like they've just finished their main course and they're drinking coffee and you've got empty wine glasses and cocktail glasses and a bowl of apples on the table. And we don't know what they ate for Christmas, but we can only assume it must have been sort of more traditional Christmas fare, possibly some things that like maybe maybe chickens that they kept in the in the kitchen garden and some uh, of the fruit and vegetables that they'd grown there mm. although we do know that Ginny did like Italian food so who knows maybe they'd had an Italian Christmas dinner they might have done who knows well we'll move on now to another English heritage site where a fair few Christmases have been enjoyed and this is Whitley Court in Worcestershire guests were obviously entertained over Christmas as well similar to the uh, Courtauld guests Whitley Court today is a ruin. So for people who don't know the story, what happened to Whitley Court? Well, very sadly, in 1937, a fire broke out in the house and very quickly spread and gutted pretty much most of the building. And unfortunately, the insurance money for the owner, Sir Herbert Smith, wouldn't cover the cost of rebuilding. So Herbert sold up. Then it passed to a number of other owners until it was acquired in 1954 by an antique dealer who bought up the ruins and started stripping out anything that could be sold. And it was only really when the the state stepped in in 1972 and the site was taken into state care that further destruction was averted and it it didn't end up being completely demolished. So, yeah, sad end, really, to what was a fabulous country house which had had a real Victorian heyday. Yes, and speaking of that heyday in the Victorian period... Who was living there at the time and how did they entertain over Christmas? Well, during the Victorian period, Whitley's home to the Earl and Countess of Dudley. They're very wealthy aristocrats who'd earned a lot of their money from mining interests, coal mining particularly, but also from owning very vast agricultural estates as well. 
and just as a glance at the local newspapers from the period from the later 19th century shows that the Dudleys were entertaining on a really lavish scale most Christmases and they counted people including the Prince of Wales that's the future Edward VII amongst their uh, house guests they had prime ministers various members of the aristocracy etc and particularly in 1876 it, it was a note that a Mademoiselle Emma Albani, the leading opera soprano of the day, was was a house guest there on that in that particular year. Wow. And in 1877, their festivities were concluded with a grand ball, and there were fireworks and a full chamber orchestra in the ballroom. So really lavish affairs. Did the Earl and Countess also engage in a bit of Christmas spirit, a bit of philanthropy one Christmas? Isn't there a record of that? They, they certainly did. We know from a number of Christmases, actually, that they were well known for hosting a tea party for local children at the house at Christmas time. And at least this party, presents were doled out to all the children. And we've got quite a good record of this for, for 1894. And in this case, the festivities were sadly delayed until early January due to an epidemic in the local area. So the, the, the festivities actually happened on some of the 10th of January. But they were still on a grand scale. So you've got 160 local children assembled in the garden. Then at three o'clock, they all sit down to an excellent tea in the dining room. And then while this is happening, a giant Christmas tree was being decorated by the vicar and a number of helpers at the same time. And they lit all the candles and put all the decorations on. So then the children could go in and marvel at this wonderful tree. And the Worcestershire Chronicle actually says that the tree was laden with over 3,000 ornaments and was lighted with upwards of a 1,000 coloured candles. Mm. Sounds like to me like a bit of a fire risk, but <laughs> it must have been a fairly spectacular scene for the children to witness when they came through. They must have felt that they were being spoiled. Well, they certainly did. And, and they and each of them received an individually labelled present as well, which the Countess had individually labelled. And the newspaper report says that these consisted of beautiful work boxes, writing cases, satchels, books, knives, scissors and toys. So quite practical presents and, and things mm. to do with, like, you know, sort of working hard and being good at their schoolwork. But still, nonetheless, I'm sure the children would have been really uh, pleased to receive them. And the families also were given gifts of clothes because, of course, many of them would have been cold during the winter and, uh, and wouldn't be able to afford to buy new clothes. Yeah, and I suppose another interesting point is that uh, we have another incident of a, a health scare during um, a Christmas here at Whitley Court. Uh, we had the previous one at Elton Palace with Henry VIII. Yes, they do tend to have a, a tendency to come during the winter period, don't they? I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's really uh, interesting the way that happens. One more thing I was going to say was that the children, as well as getting all these presents, they also did a prize draw. And the special prize is actually included the fairy queen from the top of the tree. So one lucky child would get to take the fairy queen home with them. <laughs> that's, that's really nice. It doesn't sound Dickensian at all, does it, for being uh, the Victorian period? It sounds very nice and feel good, uh, that particular Christmas there at Whitley Court. I think it does. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, obviously the Earl and Countess could afford this sort of generosity because they were very, very wealthy. But I mean, it does show that they wanted to give something back to their local community, which I think is nice. Yes, it certainly paid to be their neighbours. <laughs> well, moving on to Rest Park, we now go to Bedfordshire. Now, Rest Park, as we focused on before, was a First World War hospital for injured soldiers. And there are records from Rest of two Christmases 1914 and 1915, I gather. That's right, yes. We're really fortunate that, I said in previous podcasts, that uh, at the time, Rest was owned by the Herbert family, who kept a really detailed 
series of yearly scrapbooks chronicling their lives, which they'd pasted in lots of letters and photographs and documents. And it's from this that we have this record of, of life at rest during the wartime years, and particularly the two Christmases in 1914 and 1915. And from that, you've got a particular diary entry from Nan Herbert's diary from Christmas Day, 1914. I gather that's going to surprise some listeners. Well, what did the soldiers get up to? Yes, we we do. It's a really interesting entry. Um, well, Nan Herbert, who's the sister of, of Oberon Herbert, Lord Lucas, she serves as matron of the hospital. And while she's doing that, she's keeping this regular diary. And her entry for Christmas Day 1914 is quite revealing. And I think it shows a, a lighter side to hospital life that we might not have expected. So on this particular occasion, Nan and her brother Bron, during the war, they're very keen to lay on entertainments to keep up morale of the convalescing patients. And this was particularly the case at Christmas. And so what Nan writes in her diary, she says that, well, the men had had risen at 3am on Christmas morning to open their stockings. And then she says there was a pandemonium of penny whistles and toy trumpets broke forth. (laughs) Uh, And later she talks about the convalescent band putting on a concert in the Staircase Hall, all dressed up in fancy dress which has been brought up from London, for, especially for the occasion. And, and there's also some photographs that appear alongside it in the scrapbook. And you can see a man dressed as Elizabeth I and another <laughs> one dressed as Charlie Chaplin and some others with turbans and whatever. It's, it, it's, it's really quite a fantastic scene. When they referenced the concert as well, I mean, they mentioned that there were two of the patients were actually music hall stars, one including Burroughs, the, the famous music hall star. And so the concert was, uh, they had produced an amazing repertoire, apparently, and the, the nurses were torn between their desire for extreme conventionality and they were almost feeling that they, they wanted to applaud, but they were too embarrassed to applaud. So it sounds like it was quite a, a raucous affair and yeah. the, the men had a really good time. I can imagine. The following year, I believe there's a letter from Nan to her brother Bron talking about Christmas then. What does that tell us about their celebrations in 1915? Well, what it tells you really is that in 1915, they've almost perfected their Christmas celebration even more so. So it's even more elaborate and raucous than it had been the year before. From the diary, you can see that the kitchen staff have been busy baking provisions for Christmas from mid-November, really, or for early December. So they're making lots of mince pies, Christmas cakes, Christmas puddings. And then also a substantial stage was being constructed by the estate carpenters in the Staircase Hall for the convalescence Christmas concert. So they're actually building a big stage in the room to host a concert. And then we got a surviving programme from this show, which actually indicates that there were a series of songs, sketches and comedy skits. And that the festivities then finished with a cinema showing for the convalescence and estate staff, which was presumably in the library because the Staircase Hall would have been uh, still kitted out as the theatre. Of Christmas Day itself, Nan wrote to her brother, never have before have I seen the men more bubbling over with high spirits and perfectly delicious and genuine appreciation of everything. So she obviously thought that the men really appreciated, you know, the efforts that they'd gone into to lay on these entertainments. Yes, it sounds like she appreciated um, making them happy as well. What about 20th century Christmases at Rest Park? Because obviously it stops being a country house at some point and it becomes this agricultural research institute so do we know anything about that period yes we do i mean we're very lucky that we've done a number of oral history interviews with with former members of the institute and and they told us some really fun stories about christmas at the institute particularly in the 1970s and 80s and we know that every year the institute staff laid on a party for the children of staff members and these became pretty elaborate one of the things they did was one of the cellars down in the basement they would dress it up 
as a sort of grotto and there'll be a different theme each year so one year it was the wombles at christmas another year it was snow white and the seven dwarves i mean there were various other ones i think there was a doctor who on one year and this sort of thing so they have these fantastic sort of like homemade grottos with all the sort of like you know silver foil used as decoration and that sort of thing yeah so it must have been quite magical for the children descending down into the basement and then going into this grotto takes me back to my primary school years i must admit with father christmas at the end of the grotto exactly and also the children would wait for in the staircase hall for santa to arrive as well with a big sack of presents and this would be in the form of one of the staff dressed in a santa costume who would abseil down from the top of the staircase hall to dispense the gifts and we got details of one year where one of the staff members a chap called david temperley actually dressed as Father Christmas, actually abseiled down from a skylight in the roof of the staircase hall, which must have been quite dangerous. And on another occasion, they erected a, they created a fake fireplace in the corner of the staircase hall when they concealed someone in a Santa suit inside it. And then they had another Santa, person dressed as Santa, waving from the rooftop. And then wow. he disappears from view and then only to reappear when another Santa comes out of this fireplace in the staircase hall. So look as if he's come down the chimney. So, yes, lots of things to sort of entertain and, and, and inspire the children. Again, highly theatrical, very similar to what happened at Whitley Court with the Earl and the Countess putting on their lavish celebrations and Henry VIII at Elton Palace. Exactly. And I think it's something that, you know, throughout the centuries, you know, it's been things to delight children or big children, shall we say, who wanted to see all these sort of entertainments and sort of, you know, as you say, the, the sort of suspending belief for a moment, as, as you can see Santa emerging from the fireplace or a maiden emerging from a, from a sham castle. Yeah, it's, uh, there are lots of parallels there, aren't there? Absolutely. Moving on to Audley Ends then, which is in Essex. This is our final Christmas party property we're going to talk about. Now, specifically in the 19th century, it was the Braybrook family who lived there. What do the records from that period tell us about Christmas with the Braybrooks? Well, what the uh, the records show us is that the Audley End was pretty much a hive of activity over the Christmas season, as you would expect for a country house in this period. So we have the estate visitor book, which actually lists all the people who were present at the site on a particular date it goes day by day through the year and this shows that Lord Braybrook and his family were almost always at Audley End over the Christmas period and they are often entertaining so there's numerous occasions during December and early January where they have often 10-12 guests at a time visiting and staying overnight but during the Christmas week itself it seems to be more of a family occasion than it was just the family there so for instance we have in December of 1877 the family had 16 guests between the 18th and the 21st of December but then only the family members were dining in the house during Christmas week itself so there's a lot of entertaining going on and a lot of guests coming and going but the servants are kept busy during this period obviously how do they celebrate Christmas because obviously their job is to serve the family first isn't it well, you're absolutely right. The servants wouldn't really have got a chance to celebrate much on Christmas Day itself because they'll be serving Christmas dinner to Lord Braybrook and his family. But they do usually seem to have had their own opportunities for Christmas celebrations, particularly on Boxing Day or sometimes the 27th of December. And they were usually allowed then to invite some guests to dinner with them. So one assumes partners or family members or whatever. And so, for instance, we got in 1877, there were 20 servants, but 36 guests sat down to dinner of roast beef, vegetables and Christmas pudding in the servants' hall. 
and the upper servants, that's the housekeeper, butler, head gardener, cook, those sort of people, they had their Christmas dinner separately from the other servants on the 30th of December. And in 1876, they had a, a sort of New Year's party on the 1st of January in the steward's room with 14 guests. So it's sort of you can see the upper and lower servants are having their Christmas festivities on different occasions. Ah, very interesting. What sort of food and drink did the family consume on Christmas Day or over the general festive period? Well, we know quite a lot about the food that uh, Lord Braybrook and his family were having because all this material was all recorded in uh, in a series of documents called the Consumption Books, which list all the food that was being consumed. So we know, for instance, that in 1868, during Christmas week, there was an astonishing amount of 541 pounds of meat consumed in a week at Audley End. That was 395 pounds were eaten by the servants and 145 pounds by the family. So it's a lot of meat being consumed. And in addition to that meat, which was mainly beef, mutton and pork, there was also a consumption book list for that same week. Seven hares, 34 rabbits, 19 pheasants, 18 partridges, seven ducks, four chickens, eight turkeys, one woodcock, 260 eggs and 48 pounds of butter. It's quite a feast, really, if you think about it. It is. And we're talking about pounds as in weight, aren't we, obviously? Yes, we are. I mean, on Christmas Day itself, we know in that particular year in 1868, there were 10 people in the dining room sitting down to dinner and they consumed 12 pounds of mutton and veal between them, while the 30 servants dining on the same night had 35 pounds of beef and mutton. And then if you look at the Boxing Day Christmas dinner in the servants' hall, so this is what the servants were eating for their their special treat when they got to invite all their family along, there were 55 people were dining that day and they ate 149 pounds of beef, mutton and pork. And they're also likely to have eaten some of the six turkeys and 70 eggs that were consumed that day. So, yeah, quite a lot. And the servants are getting some pretty nice food there, you know, for Christmas as well as the family. Yes, definitely. I think I'd probably prefer the servants menu, to be honest with you. What did they drink as well? And did the servants drink similar to the Braybrooks? I suspect the servants would primarily have drunk ale or beer, whereas the family would have their spirits and claret and and fine wine from the wine Mm. cellar. I don't think that would have been uh, extended to the servants at this point, although maybe some of the upper servants would have been able to partake in the the steward's room. You could imagine the the butler going into his drinks cabinet and getting out some uh, sherry or port or fine wine to go with their meal. Maybe some hip hip flasks were given around or something as presents. Who knows? It sounds as though that they ate a lot of meat, particularly over Christmas. Was this a product of the Audley End estate? We don't know for sure. Well, what we do know is that you know Christmas food did involve a lot of meat. And during Advent, you weren't supposed to eat much in the way of meat or eggs and that sort of thing. So during the Christmas period, it was a period of feasting. So you'd get out all the meat you'd been saving for the festive season. So that's what it's not particularly surprising. What some people may find more surprising is that there was a lot more beef and mutton eaten rather than sort of turkey or goose or whatever that you might expect. And that's partly because of beef being such having such an important role in the sort of national diet and the national psyche this time. It's associated with virility and strength and Englishness against sort of effeminate French cuisine. So you, particularly for servants and people, you think, you know, to create your stout servant workforce, you'd feed them up with plenty of beef at Christmas. And some of this, as, as we, you were asking the question, would have come from the Audley End estate. And I think particularly the poultry and the game and possibly the mutton. But the beef, I think, 
because the Lord Braybrook's cows were primarily dairy cows, I think probably the beef would have been purchased in. And we know, for instance, in 1879, there's very large purchases of meat from a local butcher, Thomas Archer, during December, which you can assume is maybe buying things in ready for Christmas. So I think it's a combination of the two, really. I also understand that um, the Braybrooks, similar to the Earl and Countess of Dudley at Whitley Court in Worcestershire, they also engaged in some seasonal goodwill towards the wider community. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, we do. We know that they uh, they had a, a clothing charity which was established by Sir John Griffin Griffin in the mid-18th century. And through this, they would provide the uh, clothes very much like has happened at, at Whitley Court, where the needy families from the local area will be given clothing to, to keep them warm during the, the winter period. And we also have a, a memorandum book from fairly recently, from 1902 to 4, which was produced by Latimer Neville, the sixth Lord Braybrook. And this lists gifts of bread and meat being given to the poor in the local area as, as recently as 1902. So you can see that that idea of, of charity in the Christmas period was continued. And of course, the servants themselves would have received their Christmas box. That was a sort of annual bonus that they'll be given on Boxing Day, which is why the name the day gets its name. And as well as obviously all the parties and things laid on for them and their friends. So there's quite a sort of sense that the Braybrook family will be giving back to the local community, whether that be their servants and the state workers or whether that will be the local poor families during this period over Christmas. Mm. By the time we reach the 1900s, so the early 20th century, how has Christmas changed at Audley End? Do we have any records from that period? Well, we do, actually. We have some wonderful oral testimony of Christmas in the 1930s at Audley End from a lady called Marjorie Welby, who was the child of one of the servants there in the 1930s. And she recalls as a child being invited up to a Christmas party in the house in the Great Hall. And she remembers the long trestle tables being laid out in the hall and filled with piles of sandwiches and other food laid on by the cook. And then also, again, with an echoes of what was happening at Whitley Court, there was a beautiful Christmas tree in the corner with real candles and all the children had presents that were on the tree. And then she remembers old Lord Braybrook sat by the fire in his in his old wooden chair because he was in his 80s at this point. So he was you know, sort of feeling the cold probably a little bit in the drafty hall. And then one of Lord Braybrook's two sons then would dress up in a in a Father Christmas costume and would appear on the minstrel's gallery and then come down to the hall and present presents to the children off the tree by taking down the presents and giving them the presents. So again, a lot of sort of parallels to what was going on at Whitley and some of the other sites in terms of this sort of link with Father Christmas and presents for children and so forth. Very much so. Festive and feel good, I would describe that as. In fact, all of these places that uh, we've been describing events over the years. So as we wrap up this episode on uh, Christmas at English Heritage Sites through the ages, Andrew, how similar are the celebrations? Well, I think I've been surprised from doing the research for this, just how many of the traditions of Christmas we can trace back through the history of our sites. You know, sort of things like gift giving, the Christmas trees in the different sites, the feasting and the general celebrations. There's so many sort of parallels and similarities you can see between different sites and different periods. And throughout history, I think we can sort of see Christmas has been a time for people getting together with their family and friends and entertaining, feasting, making merry. Now, the details may have changed, but the sentiment hasn't. And I guess it's a welcome period of enjoyment and merriment in those dark, long winter months. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a time for everybody to get together and, and, and you know, be thankful for the year ahead and to, and to celebrate the Christmas season. Yes, I think those are some really strong similarities, but there are some differences as well, because obviously you had the 12 days of Christmas in uh, 
prior centuries. And you've mentioned Twelfth Nights, the 5th of January, a number of times during our conversation. So the merrymaking actually goes on for quite a long time, doesn't it, in years past compared to now? It certainly does. I mean, in, in, the, in the Tudor period, Christmas tide or the period of Christmas feasting would have spanned right from the whole 12 days of Christmas. So it would have started on the night of Christmas Eve on the 24th of December and would have run through till the 5th of January. So, I mean, we often have that period off on holiday ourselves, but the, I think the intensity of the feasting and celebrating was, was more so in that period. And of course, the notion of the Christmas season lasted much longer. It really went from the beginning of Advent when you started thinking about Christmas on the beginning of December right through to Candlemas, which was on the 2nd of February, which is when you took down your decorations. So the whole notion of Christmas as a season really lasted throughout pretty much the whole of the winter months. Yes, that's a very interesting point and um, one that was made by Dr Michael Carter when we spoke about Christmas uh, last year and, and the issue of when you should take down your decorations and whether it was bad luck or not. Which of the Christmas festivities we've discussed then would you like to most travel back to in time if you had a time machine? Well, I think I couldn't go far wrong from going back to the those evening of festivities held for Henry VIII for Eltham in 1516. I think, you know, all the performers and the minstrels, the Sham Castle, and then the feast for a thousand people with 200 dishes, it just must have been some occasion. I think I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall with that. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a good one. I think for me, it's probably going to be Audley End making merry with the servants. I think that would be a good party because there's quite a lot of them and... Uh, Plenty of food and you're guaranteed of uh, good times, I think. Oh, I think I'm sure you would have done, yes. No, I, I, it was a very hard choice, really. I mean, any of them would have been fun. I mean, it would be nice to see the abseiling Santa or the Christmas tree with a thousand candles on at Whitley Court. You know, there's so many different occasions there that would have been very, very memorable. Well, the convalescing World War One soldiers um, getting up at 3am and um, donning fancy dress and uh, tooting and all kinds of things, I think... It just goes to show that um, whatever period of history you're talking about, uh, about these English heritage sites, people are really enjoying themselves. And I think that's something that really can warm your heart as you go through the Christmas period this season in 2021. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, as we all sit down to our Christmas dinner this year in, in fairly difficult circumstances, as we had for the last few years, it's good to think back to all those those Christmases past when people were making merry, often in difficult circumstances, and uh, thinking of the year ahead and hopefully better times ahead. Yeah, make merry, but make the most of it as well. Andrew, thanks so much for talking to us. It's been really interesting to cover all these sites and um, how Christmas was celebrated over the centuries. So um, I wish you a very Merry Christmas and a, and a Happy New Year. And uh, we'll talk to you again in 2022. And the same to you, Charles. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll hear about the pioneers of polar exploration, whose homes carry blue plaques. Until then, thank you for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>